Please take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Colossians chapter 2, the New Testament book of Colossians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one uh, should be in the shelf right in front of you, uh, just below the pew in front of you, Colossians chapter 2. We've been in a series of sermons in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Our consideration this morning will be in verses 9 through 12, especially verses 11 and 12. But I want to read those verses in context, and so I'd like to ask that we begin reading in chapter 2, verse 6, and we'll read through verse 15. Colossians chapter 2, 6 through 15, with our special focus being on verses 9 through 12. Please follow along as I read Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Let's pray once more together. Father, as we come before your word now, we pray that you would open our minds and hearts to receive it, but not only to receive it, to love it, and not only to love it, but to obey it, for in this love finds its completion. We pray that we would submit ourselves to your word. We pray, Father, that you would so work in us to create within us all that is needed to be brought into line with the Bible. Please, Father, come and minister to us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, For those here this morning who are Christians, I wonder if you can remember your baptism. Uh, What was that day like? What were your thoughts? What was in your mind on the day of your baptism? Perhaps you were nervous, uh, perhaps excited, perhaps as is the custom in many churches, maybe you read your testimony of salvation in Christ before you actually entered in upon baptism. And you can remember testifying to the grace of God in your case and how He saved you from your sins before actually portraying that in baptism. Perhaps you looked forward to the day with eager anticipation and you were so overjoyed when the day finally came that as you look back on it now, it's all just a happy blur of God's blessing on your life. Perhaps some of you don't remember much at all about your baptism. Uh, Maybe it could have been because you were a little baby when it happened, uh, or maybe still a small child. Of course, most importantly, I'd wish to ask you what it is that your baptism signified. What did your baptism mean? Far more important than your memories of the day or your associations with it is the actual meaning and the significance of your baptism itself. And by that, understand me, I don't mean primarily the significance that you or your family imputed to your baptism, but the actual significance and meaning in the eyes of God that God gave to your baptism. We are in a section in chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Colossians where Paul is introducing what is really the main theme of the rest of the book, and that is the Christ-centered life lived in union with Christ, the Christian life which is properly Christ-centered. Last week, we considered verses 6 through 7. I'll read them again. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built 
up in him and establish in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Last time we talked about what it means to walk in Christ, and we talked about this idea that Paul is trying to get across, that it's not like we just receive Christ at the first, and then we continue on uh, uh, relying on worldly philosophies or empty deceit or human traditions, but rather Christ is the doorway into the Christian life, and He is the pathway itself of the Christian life. And so to walk in Christ is to submit to His Lordship, submit to His will, and it's also to walk in actual companionship and communion and fellowship with Him. That's what it means to walk in Christ. And then we didn't have time to get to verse 8. I only have time to mention it now, and I'm relying on my brother Rex Blackburn in a couple weeks to sort of help us get a little bit more out of this verse. In verse 8, Paul then says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So there was this what we're calling the Colossian heresy that's in the background of Paul's argument in chapter 2. Again, Rex is going to talk more about that in a couple of weeks. And, and, and one of the features of this heresy was that it was regulated by these worldly philosophies and empty deceits based not on Christ's wisdom, the one in whom is found all wisdom and knowledge, but rather upon human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. As you receive Christ, so walk in Him. Not, not this other stuff. This stuff is not according to Christ. Walk rather in the way that Christ has set out for you. And then in verse 9, Paul says this, For in Him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, don't you know who Jesus is? Don't, don't go after the human traditions and the empty philosophy. Stick with Jesus. Walk in Him. After all, He is the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily bodily. And Paul is simply reminding us what we saw earlier in Colossians 1. Remember in the Christ hymn, in Colossians 1 verse 19, there we considered together that wonderful line, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Him. Paul's restating that here now in a new context. Don't shift away from the gospel. Don't go after other things. Stay properly Christ-centered, for in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then he says, verse 10, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. That line, Him being the head of all rule and authority, we're going to pick that up next time, because that comes back again in verses 13 through 15. What I understand Paul to be saying in verse 10, in that first part of verse 10, is essentially to say, though it's a bit of an odd expression, you have been filled in Him, I think he's saying we've been united to Christ, and we have everything that we need through our union with Christ. We don't need what the worldly philosophers have to offer us. There's nothing we lack that can be made up for us in these empty deceits and in these human traditions. All that my soul needs is to be found in Jesus. All that can be known and experienced of God is found in Him. And in Him all the fullness of God dwells, and in Him is all wisdom and knowledge, as we have seen earlier in chapter 2. You Christians, you Colossians have been united to Christ. You've been filled in Him. All that you need as Christians is found in Christ. Now, where's this passage going? What are we going to see in the verses that follow now from verse 10? Paul now wants to talk about the foundation of their union with Christ. In other words, how is it, you Colossian Christians and you Christians here in Emmanuel Church, how is it that you became united to Christ? What's the foundation of your union with Christ. And of course, he will tell us that the foundation of our union with Christ is the forgiveness of our sins through Christ's work on the cross. Christ has reconciled us by His blood. Christ has reconciled us by removing the sinful stain of debt that we owe, nailing it to the cross and making us His through the atonement. And as he makes this point, Paul, he highlights two images that portray or picture this work of Christ on our behalf. They're in verses 11 and 12. They are circumcision and baptism. Two images Paul uses that in some way picture, image, capture what it is Jesus has done for His people in saving them, dying for them, and uniting them to Christ. Now, I want to note this passage in Colossians 2 does not have as its main theme circumcision and baptism. But circumcision and baptism are mentioned on the way to Paul's larger point and indeed support Paul's 
larger point. So what I want to do this morning is I want to linger on these two pictures, circumcision and baptism, and especially baptism, for an entire sermon. And I wouldn't always do this if I were preaching a series of sermons through the book of Colossians, but this week I want to do that, and I want to do it for three main reasons. First of all, the images of circumcision and baptism help us to understand what union with Christ is and what it is that Christ has done on our behalf. So I think if we can understand circumcision, at least in the way it's portrayed here, and understand baptism in the way Paul is speaking about these two pictures, we will better understand what it is that our Lord has done on our behalf. And I think that's the main reason Paul puts these here in verses 11 and 12. Second reason, happily, we will be celebrating the baptism of a few individuals a month from now. Uh, I think it's February 27th. If that's a Sunday, that's the day. And I want us to more intelligently enter into the symbolism of baptism, uh, to know what it is that's going on. Why are we doing this? And what does it mean? What does it entail? And then thirdly, uh, I've been having lots of conversations with people in this church recently about the subject of baptism. It's not because we as a church are planning to alter our view of baptism, and it's not mainly because those in the new members class or even members of the church are reconsidering their position on baptism. I've just had cause in different conversations to talk more with folks in this church about the subject of baptism. And in the kind providence of God, baptism is in our text this morning. And so I want to spend a little more time here, I want to linger here uh, for an entire sermon to help us better understand how this passage contributes to our understanding of baptism. So we'll consider two main points this morning. They're just the two images that Paul uses and then some points of application. So consider with me, number one, spiritual circumcision, and then we'll look at number two, water baptism. Spiritual circumcision, water baptism. Consider with me, first of all, spiritual circumcision. Please look with me, if you would, at verse 11. In Him also speaking to those who have been united to Christ, have been filled in Him, in Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That may be a familiar or unfamiliar word to you, that word circumcision. I need to give us a little background on that term. Uh, I hope most, if not everyone here, knows what circumcision is, and if you don't, you can look it up later. Uh, in the Bible, it first appears in Genesis 17. It appears as the sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. God had promised to Abraham that he would give to him and his descendants land, seed, and that through that seed he would bring blessing to all the nations of the world. It is the seed in particular that is the focus of the Abrahamic promise. We know this side of the cross that that seed had its fullest fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, this is promised, you'll permit the pun, in seed form to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and then 15, and then 17, and then 22. It's reiterated along the way. And in chapter 17, circumcision is stipulated, is supplied as the sign of this covenant that God had made to Abraham. It was to be administered to all the males of Abraham's house, uh, any adult male who had not been circumcised, and then any male then on, uh, eight days old, would be circumcised according to the will of God. And circumcision as a sign was to serve two main functions. Number one, it was to physically mark off the people of God. It was to physically mark off the people of God, many of whom were unregenerate, weren't saved, hadn't been born again, weren't united to the Lord, but they were still considered part of the ethnic national people of God, and therefore... Circumcision served as a physical boundary marker for Abraham's physical descendants who later become the people of Israel. So it, had a, a, it was a physical sign to mark off God's covenant people. The second purpose, and I think the most important purpose circumcision is given, is that it was to point the Israelites to their need to have personal saving faith in God and to experience the kind of regeneration that Abraham experienced. Physical circumcision, this outward sign, pointed to the promise that God had made to Abraham and the faith Abraham exercised in believing God. And that faith, Genesis 15, 6, counting to him as righteousness. God promises to Abraham what he's going to do in bringing 
this seed, this son, through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. Abraham believes God. It's counted to him as righteousness. And circumcision points back to that event and points to each one of the people of Israel to their need to have faith like their father Abraham. That, that it's not enough just to bear this outward physical marker in their body or to be born to parents and have a father who has this physical outward marker in their body. Something had to happen in your heart. It wasn't good enough to have the physical boundary marker. If you wanted to be saved, you must have faith like your father Abraham. And circumcision pointed to this need for regeneration and faith. And this is why in most of the references to circumcision, which granted are very few in the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, most of the references refer not to physical circumcision. They refer to what Moses will call in Deuteronomy 10, 16, the circumcision of the heart. So he speaks to circumcised Israelites and he says to them, you need to circumcise your heart so that you'll love God so that you'll follow His ways. Something more than the outward physical symbol needs to take place if you're going to be right with the Lord. You need to have a heart change. And that physical circumcision was to point to that spiritual circumcision, that heart circumcision that was to render people new creations, that was to render people possessors of saving faith in God by which they would be counted righteous. All right, that's all background on circumcision. Now here in Colossians... Paul uses the word again, and now in Colossians 2.11, Paul is making a contrast. He is saying, you, you Christians, united to Christ, you who have been filled in Him, you Christians, you who are in active, living, saving fellowship and union with Him, you underwent a kind of circumcision. But it wasn't like the circumcision under the Old Covenant, the physical outward circumcision made with hands. That's what that means there. We need a circumcision made without hands, saying not like the circumcision of the Old Covenant. No, this circumcision was not an outward circumcision performed upon eight-day-old little baby boys. No, Paul is referring here to a circumcision made without hands by Christ Himself on the human heart. Not an outward physical symbol, but rather circumcision of the heart. And he calls it the circumcision of Christ. This is a spiritual circumcision resulting in our putting off the body of the flesh. This circumcision is not outward and physical and symbolic. It is rather inward and effectual and real. This is Christ circumcising the heart. This is Christ regenerating us and changing us and making us new with the result that we love His law, with the result that we obey Him, with the result that we put off the flesh and we put on Christ. You see the point? What is the circumcision of Christ? It appears to be nothing other than regeneration itself. Actual heart change that Christ brings about within all those who are united to Him. It is new birth. It is conversion. And I believe, therefore, the putting off of the body of the flesh is a reference to what happens to us in regeneration, in spiritual circumcision. Just as flesh is removed in physical circumcision, so in this kind of spiritual circumcision, this regeneration brings with it inward transformation. Our body of flesh is put off. Our commitment to sinful fleshly indulgence is put away. In this circumcision, our body of the flesh is put off. It is cut off. It is removed from us such that we die to sin. We put off what is earthly, fleshly in us, and we live for Christ, seeking the things that are above, living out the new nature and the circumcised heart that Christ has given to us in that circumcision made without hands. In other words, Paul is saying, this circumcision is completely different. Okay? If there are Jews among you, Colossian Christians may be physically circumcised. Don't think it's like that. This is a circumcision made without hands, and it results in real heart change, actual regeneration, and an actual putting off of the body of the flesh. That's the first picture we're given. It is of spiritual circumcision. Consider with me now, secondly, the picture of water baptism. Paul speaks of spiritual circumcision in verse 11. He speaks, secondly, of water baptism. 
Let's read in context beginning in verse 11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Okay, we have to do some work here. And it's not because this text is unclear, uh, but rather uh, this text that I think is manifestly clear is misunderstood by some. Some have complicated this verse when really I don't think it's complicated at all. So let's just try to pull out the main propositions, the main things this verse, Colossians 2 verse 12, the main things this verse is asserting about baptism, about union with Christ, and about how these things relate to us. Okay, so first of all, verse 12, looking at the text, eyes on the passage, Paul says, having been buried with him in baptism. Having been. So we can just say, you have been. He is giving this verse to people who have been baptized and to people who have been united to Christ. You have been buried with him in baptism, meaning as Paul will say elsewhere in a passage like Romans 6, we have been united to Jesus in his death. So Christian, you know this, right? In the death of Jesus, you are united to Christ. He dies, we die. He dies for our sins, we die to our sins. We are united with Jesus in his death. An outward physical baptism is a picture of this. Paul is writing to Colossian Christians who have been buried with him in baptism. He's not writing to potential Christians. He's writing to actual Christians who actually have been united with Jesus in his death. This is true of you, Colossian Christians. You have participated in the death of Christ through union with him. As he died for your sins, you too have died to your sins. Okay, now the next line here. Have you been buried with him in baptism? in which you were also raised with Him. In which you were also raised with Him. In which, in which. Need some good grammarians here to help me out. What does that mean, in which? What's the which? It's baptism, right? So let's just say that. In baptism, you were also raised with Him. So in baptism, you died with Him. In which, in baptism, you were also raised with Him. So we have pictured in baptism actual union with Christ both in His death and resurrection. And so in going under the water and in coming out of the water, we have pictured cogently before us the death and resurrection of Jesus and the reality that we ourselves have been buried with Him in union with Him. We've died with Him and have been raised with Christ through our union with Him. Baptism pictures our union with Christ both in His death and in His resurrection. And of course, the significance of Christ's death and resurrection for me in terms of my union with Him is that I die to sin and I am raised with Him to newness of life. That is what is pictured in the ordinance of baptism, which normally done by the mode of immersion going under the water. It was the universal practice of the early church. It is the meaning of the word baptizo, to immerse or to dunk. And what is pictured in that symbolism in an individual candidate for baptism going under the water and coming out is that that candidate, in truth, has been united to Christ in his death and resurrection. They have died to their sin, repented of their sin, turned from their sin, died to their sin, and they are living now as a self-conscious follower of Jesus Christ, being raised to newness of life with the Lord Jesus. I used to be a member of a church uh, back in Clemson, South Carolina, and they had lots of baptisms. It was a bigger church, and the Lord had really blessed that congregation. Students would get baptized, and they would always say every time they baptized someone, you know, they would baptize in the triune name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and as they put the person under the water, they would say, buried with Him in baptism. And then as they brought them out, they say, raised with him to newness of life. Because they wanted people to understand this is what is pictured. This is what we're saying about this person. Of course, there's nothing mystical in the water. By doing this, we don't make this reality true. But we are saying, we acknowledge that this sign, this ordinance, symbolizes the reality that this man, this woman, this boy, this girl is united to Jesus in his death 
and resurrection. Okay, last one here, okay? And this is the big, the big tamale, okay? Most important words in the verse. Having been buried with Him in baptism, verse 12, in which you were also raised with Him through faith. You were buried with Christ, raised with Christ, through faith. So how do these realities of union with Christ, burial with Him, resurrection with Him become ours? And how is it that they have their meaning? You tell me. It's through faith, right? Your faith. Not your parents' faith. Not the faith of a sponsor. Not the hope of one day coming into possession of saving faith. It is through your actual saving faith. You were filled in Him. You were buried with Him. You were raised with Him to newness of life. And it is through faith that all of this has its significance and its meaning and its symbolism. In other words, you Colossians, when you were baptized, possessed actual saving faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. Faith in God was present. Faith in God was active in the candidate being baptized. No faith, and the whole thing falls apart. The, the, the symbol ceases to have its meaning. If there's no faith, there's no union with Christ. If there's no union with Christ, there's no dying with Him and being raised with Him. No dying with Him and being raised with Him, there's no baptism. It all hinges. It all has its meaning on the person being baptized actually being in possession of true saving faith. It is through faith that these realities have their meaning. So you see what is symbolized in baptism is actual saving union with Christ in His death and resurrection by which we die to sin and live to newness of life and actual faith in Christ through which these realities become ours. And it's through this that the symbol of baptism has its meaning. Baptism has no meaning apart from the one being baptized actually being in saving union with Christ and actually possessing him or herself living faith in Him. No union with Christ no faith, no baptism. We see the same idea in a number of other passages in the New Testament. I'm just going to mention one. You don't need to turn there. You just maybe write this down somewhere. I'll read it for you. It's in Galatians 3, 26 and 27. There Paul says a similar thing. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you all are sons of God through faith. You all are sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In other words, there's no such thing as someone who has been truly baptized who hasn't put on Christ. There isn't such a thing as someone who is truly baptized who isn't a son or daughter of God by faith. There isn't anyone who's been truly baptized who hasn't been in possession of true saving faith in Jesus Christ. I just think if the Apostle Paul saw someone who said, I'm not a follower of Christ, I'm not a child of God, but I've been baptized, he would think, this makes no sense. Baptism only has its meaning and its significance if the person baptized actually is in possession of saving faith through which they are united to Christ. So I hold and we hold with the Apostle Paul that baptism apart from faith should never happen. The symbolism is utterly meaningless. Any meaning that we would give to the baptism of a person who doesn't profess personal saving faith in Christ, an actual saving union with Him, would be meaning we ourselves are imputing to it. But it would be devoid of any biblical meaning or any God-given meaning. The only meaning in baptism that means anything is saving faith in Christ through which we come into union with Him. If that reality is present... If indeed we have actually truly been regenerated and spiritually circumcised in heart, if we have died to sin and been spiritually raised with Christ, then baptism bursts with all kinds of meaning. You might think of this illustration, those who are in the Exploring Emmanuel class are probably tired of hearing this illustration, but I think it fits, I think it works well, I think it's helpful to have something like this in mind. We're not a very symbolic culture, the symbolism is so often lost on us. Uh, but symbolism is a very big deal in the Bible. It's a very big deal in Eastern cultures. It's a big deal in Western cultures until, I don't know, the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution and all of that. 
but we still honor some symbols. I am wearing a symbol right now. Does anybody know what that symbol is? It's my wedding ring. I wear this as a symbol. What does this ring symbolize? It symbolizes an actual covenant relationship with a woman named Jenna de Prima. It is not our marriage, it is not our covenant, but it symbolizes our covenant. Now, if I walked around with a wedding ring on while being a single man, don't have a wife, don't even have a girlfriend, but I got a wedding ring on, would that symbol mean much at all? It certainly wouldn't symbolize or represent an actual one flesh union with another woman in the world. The symbol would be devoid of that meaning. Now, I could give it some other meaning, I suppose, but that would be meaning I'm imputing to it. Does it symbolize an actual relationship with an actual person? I would hold that baptism functions in a similar way. Baptism pictures actual saving union with Jesus Christ. If the person being baptized is not a follower of Christ, has not put their faith and hope and trust in Jesus, doesn't have a self-conscious commitment and attachment to Jesus Christ as a follower, as a disciple, as one who has been born again and united to Jesus Christ, the whole symbol falls apart. The only meaning it could have would be meaning that we impute to it, that it would not be any meaning condoned by the Bible. See, the meaning of baptism is that we actually have been united to Christ in His death and resurrection through faith. And again, if faith and union with Christ are there, all of a sudden the symbol explodes with all kinds of supernatural meaning. Now, I'll just say at this point, I am quite aware that there are many Christians throughout church history who would disagree with our understanding of Colossians 2.12 and a host of other passages that deal with baptism. Uh, be Presbyterians, Anglicans, Methodists, Roman Catholics, Lutherans, all practice what is called infant baptism, okay? In preaching, what I think is the clear position of the Bible, I do not mean to indict the sincere Christianity of other people who think differently than we do on the subject of baptism. We are a people together for the gospel with all those who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. If you want, we could go to my study just down the hall here after the service, and you will see on the wall a picture of John Calvin, Pado-Baptist, infant Baptist. You will see John Owen, who baptized babies as well. You'll see J.C. Ryle, who also baptized babies. Probably 80% of my library is by people who don't hold the view of baptism that I am preaching this morning. So I don't mean by this sermon to promote tribalism but I do mean by this sermon to preach what I understand to be the clear teaching of Scripture. And I must emphasize this, brothers and sisters, I don't think this is unclear. The picture of baptism is a picture of actual saving union with Christ, of dying with Him, of rising with Him, of being in possession of true saving faith. I'd like to turn now to implications. We've seen water baptism, uh, excuse me, spiritual circumcision, and secondly, water baptism. I'd like to draw out now a few implications from what we've seen in our exposition of Colossians 2, 11 through 12. And my implications or applications correspond to those two points. Two main implications from these two pictures were given in these verses. Number one, if salvation in Christ involves a spiritual circumcision of the heart by Christ Himself, if salvation in Christ involves a spiritual circumcision of the heart by Christ Himself, the Christian life, therefore, requires a putting off of sin, requires a putting off of sin, or as our text says, the body of the flesh. That was a long heading. Let me give it to you again. If the salvation in Christ involves a… If salvation in Christ, excuse me, involves a spiritual circumcision of the heart by Christ Himself, the Christian life therefore requires a putting off of sin. I don't mean to be any more graphic than the passage itself, uh, but the language of the text is pretty graphic. Paul actually wants us to think about physical circumcision and what it entailed. And Paul wants us to treat our sin in the same way you would treat the foreskin after circumcision. What do you do with it? You throw it out. 
Get that thing away from me. Unclean. Be done with that. Put this thing away. That is to be our attitude toward our sin, toward the body of flesh through the circumcision that Christ has wrought. Our attitude toward our sin is to be one of warfare and hostility. Push this away from me. Get this away from me. Put it off. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And just as in physical circumcision there is a removing of flesh and a putting away of the unclean things, so in spiritual circumcision we put away our sin, mortify our sin, and live to righteousness. And this is where Paul is going to go with this. Colossians chapter 3, we looked at this last week. If you turn over to Colossians 3, as, as Paul tells us what it means to live a Christ-centered life and what it means to walk in Him and what it means to live as someone who has been truly spiritually circumcised, you're going to see the language of put off and put on. That's the language of circumcision. Colossians 3 verse 5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. You've been spiritually circumcised, and you've put off the body of the flesh. You've put off the old self with its practices, verse 10, and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its Creator. In other words, brother, sister, what does this spiritual circumcision mean for you? This circumcision of Christ that He has performed on your heart. The spiritual circumcision performed upon us by the Lord Himself requires in us the mortification of our sins and positive obedience to Christ's precepts. Brother, sister, I'll just ask you, do you take this kind of a posture toward your sin? It's an old word, mortification of sin. It's especially popular in our circles because it was the title of a book written by a Puritan named John Owen. Those pages, that book, was originally a sermon series preached to Oxford undergraduates in the mid-17th century by John Owen. The title of his book is The Mortification of Sin. And in that book, he says things like this, do you mortify your sin? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. There is not a day but sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed on, and it will be so while we live in the world. Let not that man or woman think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. What is Owen talking about? He's talking about putting off the body of the flesh, mortifying sin, removing the unclean thing, and living in purity and in righteousness and putting on Christ. You see, there cannot be, among someone who is truly a child of God, an ambivalent attitude towards sin. The attitude is all out hostility and warfare, putting off the body of the flesh. I want to be done with this. And that involves a certain measure of individual devotion and coming to Christ every day with fresh repentance and fresh faith, seeking to walk in the ways that He has prescribed for us. And it also is a corporate project that we engage upon as a body. We must help one another in this. I remind you, brothers and sisters, after the service, Phil and Michelle Calhoun are going to covenant with us as new members in this church, and we will covenant together to help one another put to death our sin. Do you intend to keep covenant with your brothers and sisters? We must help one another put off the body of the flesh. Kill your sin, brother. Kill your sin, sister, or it will be killing you. Don't give it a foothold in your life. Put off the body of the flesh. You have been spiritually circumcised by Christ. And as many of us who have put off the flesh have put on Christ, let us live like it. But let me encourage you. One of the things that happens in regeneration, in spiritual circumcision, in new birth, is that Christ actually implants within us a new nature and a new power 
by which we can overcome our sin and put it to death. No one who is in Christ needs to be hopeless or defeatist about their sin. Brother, sister, I just want to encourage you, however much you've been banging your head against that same brick wall of your remaining sin and your besetting sins, you need not be hopeless or defeatist about your sins and your sin pattern and about the sins of the flesh. Jesus has placed within you through the circumcision spiritually that He has wrought in your heart, He has placed with you a new principle, a new power, a new nature by which you can actually please God. Sin will no longer reign in your mortal bodies, the Apostle Paul says. You can overcome your sin through the grace and help and power that the Lord Jesus Christ supplies. The circumcision that you have experienced, brother, sister, is not an outward physical circumcision made with hands, but a spiritual circumcision with real power to change us. And that is His gift and regeneration to each one of us who are the Lord's people. I can overcome my sin. And by the grace of God, through the strength and power of a new life that He supplies, I can have victory over it. But it begins with the recognition of this reality. For all those who are in Christ, you have been circumcised by Christ, and that involves a removal of the body of the flesh. All right, second implication, and this corresponds with what we've seen about baptism, and then I'll be done. I apologize for another long heading. I'll repeat it a couple times. If baptism represents actual saving union with Christ through faith, if baptism represents actual saving union with Christ through faith, we should all elevate our sense of the significance of baptism. I'll say it again. If baptism represents actual saving union with Christ through faith, and it does, we should all elevate our sense of the significance of baptism, both our own baptism and that of our brothers and sisters. In a month, as I said, we plan to have a baptismal service. What is the meaning of baptism? What will be happening when we watch various ones come to be baptized and we open the cabinets behind me and in the presence of God and the assembly? We baptize these individuals. What is going on? What do we believe is happening there? Let me first tell you what's not happening. Baptism is not a personal dedication to do better, nor is it a recommitment to try harder. Baptism is not merely an expression of one's resolve to get one's life together. Baptism is not some kind of rite of passage for young people. It's not like a graduation ceremony. Baptism is not a special kind of family event celebrating or honoring a particular family in the church or an individual, nor is it a way to recognize the birth of a new baby or something like that. If any of these are your view of what baptism is, I'm telling you we need to elevate our view of baptism. It's so much more than the things I just mentioned. What's happening in baptism? Baptism symbolizes that the person being baptized in truth has been born again. So spectacular and supernatural a thing that Nicodemus in John 3 was confounded, and it prompted him to ask, how is it that a man can go a second time into his mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, I say to you again, you must be born again. You must be born from above if you're to enter the kingdom of heaven. And in baptism, this is what's happening. We believe when we baptize individuals that they have in truth passed from death to life. They have been united to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Baptism symbolizes that the heart of stone has been removed and that the Spirit of God has been implanted within the person, a heart of flesh. It symbolizes that the person being baptized was formerly a rebel against God, destined for hell, and has, through God's gracious adoption, become a child of God, destined for eternal life. Baptism is a statement, a symbol of the most radical spiritual change and transformation possible. It is to be likened to someone who was dead and buried in their grave being resurrected. It's important you understand this. None of this 
is actualized or conferred upon someone by water baptism. But it is symbolized by baptism. It is, as we say, an outward sign of an inward reality. And if this inward reality is not present, the outward symbol is meaningless. Now, I'll just say, as an aside, friends, does this not help us to understand who ought to be the proper candidates for baptism? Those who we hope to baptize in this church will be those who both profess and evidence a saving attachment to Jesus Christ by faith. And we will be saying to you, and they will be saying to you, that I believe myself to have been dead in my trespasses and sins. And I believe that through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, I have been raised with Him to newness of life. I believe that I have been born again. I believe that through faith I am right with God and justified in His sight. And I enter now upon baptism as a self-conscious follower of Jesus Christ, putting all my faith and trust in Him. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. But you understand what's going on here. In each of these cases, the goal in articulating and defending this view of baptism is so that we may enjoy everything that this beautiful ordinance symbolizes. So that we, the members who sit here, the audience, as we behold the ordinance of baptism, we see someone enter into the waters and we see them go down into the water and back out again. We can, with one heart and one soul, celebrate the passing of death to life of our brothers and sisters and their entrance into fellowship with us in the church pictured in baptism. But I want to return to the opening of the sermon because Paul's main point in Colossians 2.12 is not to tell us who the proper candidates for baptism are. I think it does tell us who the proper candidates for baptism are, but that's not Paul's main point. He wants to say something to those who are Christians. He wants to call them in their minds to reflect upon their baptism, to remember when they were baptized, and to understand the significance of it and the implications of it. The New Testament at a number of points, especially in Paul's letters, calls believers to remember their baptism and to think upon it again and again and again. And I hope you as a Christian think often on your baptism and what it signified. Because it pictures to us in a tangent and cogent way the realities of what it means to be a Christian. I'm to think often, I'm a baptized Christian. I have died with Christ to my sin. And I have been raised with Him. I'm baptized. Both spiritually speaking and outwardly, physically. We're to think upon our baptism and what the baptism symbolized. You might think of it this way. There is a man or a woman. They're in a situation in their work environment. And somehow they're being tempted to cheat on their spouse. And, and this idea just begun to have life in their mind. They've not done the thing, but they're thinking about it. And you can imagine that man or that woman sitting in quiet contemplation and looking down at their hand, and they're just twiddling that ring. And something experientially happens as they consider that symbol of the actual union they have with their spouse. Like, what am I doing? I made a covenant. I am united to my wife. I have been united to my husband. I cannot contemplate this thing. I'm a married man. I'm a married woman. I need to repent of this, turn from this, and pursue my spouse. That's how our memory of our baptism is meant to work. Here's this temptation. Here's this thing, here's this lie that Satan is telling us, and we're to think, I'm a baptized Christian. I have died with Christ. And through my union with Him and through faith in Him, I've been raised with Him. How can I do this thing? How can I live this way? I'm to reckon myself dead to sin, and I'm to put off the unclean thing. And I'm to live in the newness of life that Christ has made for me through my union with Him. And did I not mean that and believe that in my baptism? 
Oh Lord, I believe it now. I will follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I'm a baptized Christian united to the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. Let's pray together. Father, the reality that sinners can actually experience and in truth enter into union with Christ, it's so vast an idea. It's, it's so hard for us to hold together all the implications that we through faith have been united to Your Son. But we pray through our contemplation of this passage this morning, you would help us to understand more what it means to actually be attached to Jesus, to be in union and communion with Him, to walk in Him, to live out the circumcision of Christ on the heart, to live out the mortification of sin and the walking in newness of life that is ours through union with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, You know I am a man and have no prophetic insight, but I do pray if there is anyone here who is contemplating some act of betrayal of the Lord, some sin, some wicked thing, please call to their minds these realities. What you have actually done in their hearts by grace, what they in faith pledged in their baptism. We pray, not only through their resolve, but through the supernatural power of your Spirit working in them, cause them to change course, to repent, to hold fast to Christ, and to live as baptized Christians, dead to sin and alive to God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.